When I whet my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. Welcome back to episode 189 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. Today is March 27th, 2023, and we have a really, really great episode in store for you. As a matter of fact, I have uploaded this episode as an Instagram video. So as you know, my email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. I have a... Uh, Telegram, which, you know, I'd like to get more activity on there, and of course the podcast. So I have uploaded a video uh, segment, it's about a half hour long on my Instagram, so go, of this very episode, so go and check it out, because the visuals uh, contribute a lot to the uh, effectiveness of the episode. So today uh, is going to be very interesting, we're going to take two old friends of the show, and uh, friend number one is going to be The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. And then the second old friend of the show is the movie The Godfather, the iconic movie The Godfather's Part 1 and 2. And what I'm going to do is actually take the movie The Godfather 1 and 2 and have that front and center. And as a backdrop, I'm going to have The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene have uh, illustrating the expression of those laws of power within the movie The Godfather. So... It's gonna it's gonna really highlight and illustrate you know the power of, of of these laws, and then on the back end of that, which is not going to be on the Instagram video, but just on this, is going to be uh, an ND and near death experience, the uh, little clip that's about twenty minutes. That's really really interesting, the way it was broken down. So let's get right into it. And as a side note, as you're listening to uh, the clip from The Godfather where, when they're speaking in Italian or Sicilian, uh, obviously there's no translation. If you do go to the Instagram video that I put up, you'll see the subtitles uh, of the dialogue in Italian being translated into English, so it'll make a lot more sense, so check it. The original idea that I had for this episode 189 was to basically look at the movie The Godfather through the lens of The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. So in other words, you know, you have the backdrop of, actually not the backdrop, but you have the movie The Godfather, and in the backdrop you have Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power, in which I would show um, a specific scene and then relate it to one of the, law, one of the 48 Laws of Power. But what inevitably happened, and I kind of should have seen it coming, was that The Godfather, the movie itself is so dense, so rich, that the scenes that I selected inevitably would show any multiple number of the laws of power. So it might imbue maybe five or six of these laws. So, And they ended up basically being a lot of the same laws of power. Uh, so... My idea is to basically, or my approach is going to be basically, I've selected a number of scenes from The Godfather. I'm going to show the scene, and then I'm going to outline what 
laws of power apply to it or just the whole dynamic between the movie uh, The Godfather and The 48 Laws of Power because they basically uh, mirror one another um, in an amazing way. The only thing I will say is that there are two laws that he should have included that he didn't. And the first one, and it's a real biggie, it's expect the unexpected. And one of the other laws that should be added, I guess you would say it's uh, 50, you know, law, law of power 50, would be, and it was Michael Corleone said that uh, he was speaking to one of his colleagues and he said that his dad mentioned it to him. And that was, um, always think like the people around you are thinking. And that doesn't mean to have the same mindset or the same perception or the same choices that they make. But to put yourself in a position where you can think and emulate or simulate what they're thinking and how they're processing the information. So this way, you not only see it from your side, but you'll see it from someone else's side. And this is something that's really not easy to do. But it's pretty profound. And I, I figured that actually should have been one of the laws of power too. And that is to always think the way the people around you are thinking. So, all right, with that in mind, again, what I'm going to do, we're going to get in here and we're going to play a given scene. And I'm not exactly sure right now that I'm just rolling on the beginning of this podcast. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put in a, a scene. And actually, this is actually going to be on my Instagram. So you'll be able to um, see the visuals and, the, you know, the uh, scenes play out on the video as I do my commentary on it, or as they say, the reaction to it. So, needless to say, if you've never read the book 48 Laws of Power or listened to it on YouTube or skimmed through it and really went over what those 48 Laws of uh, Power are, or if you've never seen the movie The Godfather 1 and The Godfather 2, I suggest you immediately go and watch both Godfather 1 and 2 and listen to 48 Laws of Power on YouTube and try to digest it and, and emulate that in your life and your thinking and your thought patterns, both the movie and the book. So it's incredibly important. And and uh, if you're uh, an adult or an older person, or older men, let's say, man or woman, whatever, uh, you should watch it at least once or twice a year. If you're a young man, however you want to interpret young man, you should watch The Godfather at least six times a year and listen to The 48 Laws of Power at least six times a year until it becomes part of your psyche, part of your your uh, mental gymnastics, as it were. So again, we're going we're gonna to play a scene. I'm going to do the commentary, and let's get into it. Now, in this first clip, we cut to Don Vito Corleone, Clemenza, and Tessio. Again, this is circa 1900, Hell's Kitchen. They're sitting together in their kitchen, and they're having a meeting, a strategy meeting, because they've formed a small gang together. And their little gang that they're putting together, they need to pay tribute up to the local mafia crime boss by the name of Don Finucci. Now, as they sit and discuss this, Tessio and Clemenza are kind of going over the reasons why they need to pay this tribute, because it's, you know, the cartel tax that they have to pay and for the police protection. So in order to get that, they have to pay up $200, I guess, 
I believe it's every month to Don Fanucci in order to have this kind of protection and this, uh, you know, this uh, cartel tax that they have to pay. And as they're going over the details, it, you can notice that uh, Don Vito gets a little upset and he begins to question and say, well, why do we need to pay up this tribute, so much tribute to Don Fanucci? Because I actually know a couple of guys up there that have their own little gangs and they're not paying anything to Don Fanucci. So they brainstorm it. And uh, Tessio and Clemenza are kind of compliant and kind of afraid of Don Fanucci. But uh, Don Vito Corleone is like, well, you know what? I, I, I'm i not really that scared of this guy. And I think that, you know, we, we can give him a run for it. And uh, so let's see how it works. I know he's expecting $200, but I'm going to go and give him $150 as uh, we have our little sit down at the coffee shop. And uh, I'll guarantee you that I'll get him to accept this money. And Don Corleone tells uh, uh, Clemenza and Tessio, don't worry about it, trust me, I, I got this, I can handle this. So Don Vito proceeds to go to the meeting with Don Fanucci at a dark, dark uh, remote coffee shop. They sit down, and you can read the, uh, the subtitles on the video clip here, what transpires throughout this. But what happens as a result of this meeting, Don Vito feels that he is going to be able to actually overthrow or knock off this uh, this pose of Don Fanucci. He feels he's a poser and he doesn't have any real muscle on the street. So watch this the, these two scenes as they unfold. So the first scene is the meeting between Clemenza, Tessio, and Don Vito in the kitchen, strategizing what they want to do. And the second scene is uh, Don Vito meeting with Don Fanucci uh, paying him his $100 tribute, getting him to agree to that, a lesser amount. And then Don Vito takes the whole situation into his own hands. So what we're going to see here in effect are the laws of uh, 48 laws of power that we're going to see in effect in these two scenes are law number three, conceal your intentions. As you can see, he's not making it obvious what he's doing, Don Vito, so he's keeping everything concealed and uh, and uh, Fenucci has no idea what's what's going to take place. Also, you have law number five. Much depends on reputation. Guard it with your life. Uh, and that's the reputation of Don Vito and his gang. He wants to maintain. Uh, law number 15, crush your enemy totally, which is very Machiavellian. Law number 21, play a sucker to catch a sucker. Seem dumber than your mark. You know, so Don Vito kind of downplayed himself at this meeting for obvious reasons. Law number 28, uh, enter action with boldness. It's pretty obvious in, in, in the second scene. Law number 35, uh, master the art of timing. It's pretty self-explanatory. Time was right. Law number 37, create compelling spectacles. Uh, law number 39, Stir up waters to catch fish. Uh, law 42. Uh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And law number 48. Uh, assume formlessness. And I would also like to add to this. My additional um, laws that I wanted to tack on to this. And that's law number 49. Which is expect the unexpected. And law number 50. Which again I've had appended to this. And that is think. 
the way the people around you are thinking. So let's check it out.
migliaio. Solo rogento scudi. Eh, sogno a cotte demonite. Che vuole? A comore sogno senza tabacco. Me la senti che di tempo. Non si capisci, no? E mi. Now we're going to take a look into three scenes from The Godfather Part 1 and 2. And those scenes are comprised of, number one, the meeting between Salazzo the Turk and Don Vito Corleone, where uh, Salazzo is trying to impose himself on or request make a request of Don Vito to join in on the venture to distribute heroin in the United States. So... Salazzo, the Turk, is affiliated with the Tatalia family. And again, they want to bring in heroin. They want to utilize Don Vito's political connections, police connections, attorneys, and influence that he has here in New York City and in America, again, to help them distribute heroin. And this is probably the mid-50s, so this is just the beginning of that and a lot of money in it. So there's a meeting between Don Vito and Salazzo, and it's pretty self-evident what takes place there, okay? Then the second scene is going to be the attempted murder, the hit on Don Vito Corleone, where you see what's his, Fredo bumbling and fumbling as he drops his gun while he watches his father almost get shot to death in the streets of New York City and his incompetence, Fredo. And then the third uh, scene that you're going to see is a, probably the greatest cinematic clip in history in my opinion and this is where Michael Corleone has a sit-down meeting with McClutsky who is the corrupt cop and uh, Salazzo the Turk in a restaurant where Salazzo tries to explain how he didn't really want to put a hit on on Mike's dad or Don Vito he didn't want to do it but how Don Vito thinks in antique ways and old antique ways and he needs to come up to the future, and the reason why he tried to kill his dad is to keep the peace. Just a whole lot of schlingo, a whole lot of BS, and Mike isn't buying any of it. And Mike's purpose at this meeting is to execute vengeance and impose the Corleone family will on the other five families. In that scene in the restaurant, everything that you need... To know of this scene, you could see it in Michael Corleone's eyes as he's waiting to pull the trigger on these two. And it's just epic. And as I said, this movie is so dense and so rich 
that it, it just embodies these 48 laws. So what you're going to see on display here in these scenes, you're going to see law number three, conceal your intentions. Law number five, so much depends on reputation, guard it with your life. Law 15, crush your enemy totally. Law 21, play a sucker to catch a sucker, seem dumber than your mark. Law 28, enter action with boldness. Law 35, master the art of timing. Law 37, create compelling spectacles. Law 39, store up waters to catch fish. Law 42, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Uh, law 48, uh, uh, assume formlessness. And again, my, my uh, 49th and 50th law, law that I've created is law 49, expect the unexpected. And law 50, think the way the people around you think. So let's get into the scene. You're not too tired, are you, Tom? Oh, I slept on a plane. Huh? Yeah, there's a lot of notes here. Now, Salazzo is known as the Turk. He's supposed to be very good with a knife, but only in matters of business with some sort of reasonable complaint. Uh, his business is narcotics. He has fields in Turkey where they grow the poppy. In Sicily, he has the plants to process them into heroin. Now he needs cash, and he needs protection from the police, for which he gives a piece of the action. I couldn't find out how much. The Tatalia family is behind him here in New York. Now they have to be in it for something. How about his prison record? Two terms, one in Italy, one here. He's known as a top narcotics man. Santino, what do you think? There's a lot of money in that white powder. Huh? Well, I say yes. There's more money potential in narcotics than anything else we're looking at. Now, if we don't get into it, somebody else will. Maybe one of the five families, maybe all of them. Now, with the money they earn, they can buy more police and political power. Then they come after us. Now we have the unions, we have the gambling, and they're the best things to have. But narcotics is a thing of the future. Uh, if we don't get a piece of that action, we risk everything we have. I mean, not now, but 10 years from now. So? What's your answer going to be, Pop? There. Don Corleone. I need a man who has powerful friends. I need a million dollars in cash. I need Don Corleone, those politicians that you carry in your pocket, like so many nickels and dimes. What is the interest for my family? 30%. In the first year, your end should be three, four million dollars. And then it would go up. Now, what is the interest for the Tatali family? My compliments. I'll take care of the Tatalias. Out of my share. So I received 30% for finance, political influence, and legal protection. That's what you're telling me. That's right. Why do you come to me? Why do I deserve this generosity? If you consider a million dollars in cash, just finance. Disalute, I'm calling you. 
I said that I would see because I heard that you were a serious man to be treated with respect. But uh, I must say no to you, and I'll give you my reasons. It's true, I have a lot of friends in politics, but they wouldn't be friendly very long if they knew my business was drugs instead of gambling, which they regard as a, a harmless vice, but drugs is a dirty business. Oh, don't call it, it doesn't make any difference to me what a man does for living, I understand. But uh, your business is uh, a little dangerous. If you're worried about security for your million, that the Italians will guarantee it. Oh, are you telling me that the Italians guarantee our investment? Wait a I have a sentimental weakness for my children, and I spoil them, as you can see. They talk when they should listen. But anyway, Senor Sonozzo, I know it's final, and I wish to congratulate you on your new business. I know you do very well, and good luck to you. Especially since your interests don't conflict with mine. Thank you. Santino, come here. What's the matter with you? I think your brain is going soft. From all that comedy you're playing with that young girl. Never tell anybody outside the family what you're thinking again. Italian food in this restaurant. Good. Try the veal. It's the best in the city. I'll have it. Kavid.
gonna speak Italian tonight. Go ahead. Tu, hai sapere che chi ti è successo tra me e tuo padre fu una cosa di business. E io hai un grosso rispetto per tuo padre, ma tuo padre pensa antica. E tu non lo vuoi capire che io sono un uomo di onori. Tu ma devi sti così. Chi sai? Che tu vai a sapere che è aiutata la famiglia Tattaglia. Io credo che ci potremmo mettere in accordo. Io voglio pace. Lasciamo perdere che tutti sti cazzati. Ma voi gioca. Che? Come si dice? What I want. What's most important to me. Is that I have a guarantee. No more attempts on my father's life. What guarantees can I give you, Mike? I am the hunted one. I missed my chance. You think too much of me, kid. I'm not that clever. All I want is a truce. I have to go to the bathroom. Is that all right? You gotta go, you gotta go. I've first him. Italiano come tuo padre? Tuo padre sta male. Quando tu sta meglio, cerchiamo di fare un di un e mettiamo tutto a posto. Steve Saria si deve finire.
I move around the board like a chess piece. Employ supreme mathematics and just watch my stacks increase. Potato on the barrel, rusty pin on the ratchet. Flash that Cuba link round here, gone man gonna snatch it. Five racks in the stash, tell your mans you broke. Always move in silence, I check my words before I spoke. Surrounded by sharks, I ain't see no land. Made my way round the block, Porter Rock with them nice hands. Project Lobby game face on with the vest. You living on demon time, me, my God got me blessed. These youths just talk, they don't know how to listen. The media just teaching them to subtract. The 12 jewels be teaching me addition. Bodega lifestyles of the rich and famous. Just hoping when the last days come, the Supreme God will be able to maintain us. A thousand E-friends, not one that can teach us. The only one that calms my fears of death is the Lamb of God, Jesus. Hi, my name is Vinny Todd Tolman, or Vincent Todd Tolman. And I did have a death experience myself. Back in 2003, me and a really good friend of mine, we took a brand new supplement that was very popular and hot at the time. And we ordered it online and took it and turned out it was toxic for both our bodies. We decided quickly to go to a restaurant to eat some food and hopefully that would make us feel better. And we barely made it in. My buddy made it into the dining room and collapsed on one of the dining tables. He uh, began to vomit and the manager called 911, got him taken away and, and he ended up coming out of the hospital the very next day totally fine. Meanwhile, my story is a bit different. I ended up dying. I went in the bathroom. I locked the door because it was a single use bathroom. So I locked the door, I went in, and I too kind of lost my balance, fell to the ground the same way my buddy did in that booth. But as I did it, I fell onto my back. And when I fell onto my back and started to vomit, it made me aspirate or suffocate. And that is where my story takes quite a, an odd turn, where I get to see our real existence. And the very moment that this happened, I remember the room spinning and, and seeing just all darkness around me and being plunged into this cool, dark feeling and almost an electrical or, or electricity type feeling that I was plunged into. And almost instantly, I started to see a scene unfolding in front of me. And to me, it seemed like a movie. It seemed like a play. It didn't seem like it was real because I was observing it, but yet I was distant from it. And I was definitely the observer because where I was, was, was here where I was and not down there. And it is odd to say, but I didn't know it was my own body. I didn't know that what I was looking at was my own body. I thought that what I was looking at was a dead body and it didn't look like me at that point. And I also was perceiving the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions of everybody in that building and in that little restaurant. I could feel and hear the thoughts of the manager and, and the worry that he had for the guy that had just been taken away in an ambulance that he didn't know. And, you know, I'm hearing the thoughts of customers in the restaurant as well as the cook in the back. And I'm just aware of all these things. And, and it was very different. I kept thinking that this is such a weird way to see a movie, to be able to hear and understand everyone in the in the scene. And as this was happening, one of the customers kept trying to use the restroom, kept trying to get the locked door open. And after so many times, he approached the manager and said, hey, I think, you know, someone might be in trouble in there. He kept hearing a phone ring. So the manager went over, knocked on the door and opened the door and saw the dead body on the ground. At this point, they did call 911 again. They called the emergency services. They got emergency services there, a second team to respond. 
and as they responded, they did pronounce the body dead. They they did some preliminary attempts to try to resuscitate the body or bring it back, but it didn't work. They knew that the body was long gone. It was actually starting to turn cold. It felt cold to them. Went ahead and proceeded to bag the body up. They put the body into a bag, zipped it up. They strapped it to a an EMT or medical gurney, and they went ahead and pulled away from the scene to take this body and turn it into the medical examiner. And still at no point, at no point did it even dawn on me that what I was watching was my body. So I'm watching them pull away from the scene of this restaurant and they get out on the main road. As they get onto that main road instantly, right as they hit that road, I see a glow start to form around this brand new medic. He's sitting in the back of the ambulance. The two veteran medics are sitting in the front but this rookie medic, his first week on the job, he literally started to glow around his heart area. And as I was witnessing this, I was just in kind of in awe. It was very powerful and very beautiful just to even perceive this light coming from him. And out of nowhere, I feel this very strong force come over my left shoulder where I am. I felt the velocity of something going over my shoulder and I could perceive that energy actually hit that rookie medic right there in the heart space. And as it did, I heard very loudly, this one's not dead. And I looked around, I looked around to see where that voice came from. So did the rookie medic. He looked around, he didn't know where that voice came from. As a follow-up to that, he was looking over at the other two medics thinking maybe it's them that are trying to play a trick on me and realized quickly that it wasn't them. And he didn't do anything. He just, he did hear the message though. He knew he heard it. And that light, that light was still there glowing around his heart. And it started to expand and get bigger. And it literally, instead of just glowing around his heart space, it went all the way to his waist, to above his head. He was literally growing for, or glowing from the waist up, completely glowing of this golden light. And then for a second time, I felt this force go over my, my left shoulder. And I heard even louder this second time, this one's not dead. Now, when that was said the second time, the medic, he knew he wanted to do something about this. So he went ahead and he undid a couple of straps on that body. He unzipped the zipper on the, the bag itself, the body bag, and he started feeling around. He started feeling around to see if he could get any sign of life, any pulse, any type of sign of life. And he didn't find anything. So he went ahead and he made a physical contact with the bone inside the leg. And when he made that contact, I felt an ignition or a spark. I felt a real strong spark of almost electricity or electrical spark between me and him. And I knew he felt it too. We both felt it instantly. And that's when I started to realize something really odd was going on, something that did involve me. And this rookie medic, the miracle of it to me at this point when he felt that spark, that was enough for him that he wanted to at least try some more to resuscitate this body. So he went ahead and began the process of attempting the resuscitation of this body. He started getting, you know, forcing oxygen into the lung. He started the procedures that they typically do. As he did so, he hooked up a special machine that shocks the body to get the heart to start again. And this machine, it makes a loud alarm once you turn it on and it gets ready to charge the body with electricity. As it does, this alarm going off, it made the other two medics stop what they were doing and look back and see what this rookie was doing in the back of the ambulance. When they saw this, they really started tearing into this and tearing him down, telling him, hey, you're going to get fired. This is illegal. You can't do this. 
this is a dead body. This is not an experiment. You need to stop. And he didn't. He went ahead and let that first round of shocks go. Uh, nothing happened, though. That first round of shocks didn't do anything. The second round of shocks, he went to a second round. They did get a single heartbeat, and then the monitor stayed flatlining or no heartbeat. But they got one single heartbeat on the second round of shocks, which that motivated him to get to the third round of shocks. When he got to the third round of shock, they got a steady and faint heartbeat. And to me, an added miracle to all of this, not just the miracle of this amazing rookie that followed this prompting or this feeling, this voice, this happened one block away from a hospital. So they were able to turn this body directly into the hospital and have a trauma team there waiting, ready to receive it. As this is all happening, I still, where I was, was not aware that what I was watching was me. Until this point, as they transferred the body from the ambulance into the hospital bed or the hospital gurney, as they were doing that transfer, the body was going into seizures and it was, it was flailing and moving all around. There was a lot of gross things coming out of the mouth and, and out of the body itself. As they were doing that, though, they, they realized they needed to strap the body down so that they could work on it. And they strapped the legs first, then they went and strapped the arms. As they strapped the right arm, no problem. But when they went to strap the left arm, I felt as if someone was strapping my left arm where I was sitting watching this all happen. I really felt someone was strapping my left arm. And I looked down to see how someone could be strapping my left arm where I was sitting. And what I saw was the left arm on the body itself. And I resisted and I actually broke that strap that they were strapping the body with. They came back with a, a bigger second strap. It looked very much like a leg strap that they had put on legs. And they put that on the arm. And, and I knew instantly that what I had been witnessing this whole time was me. At this point, it was an extremely scary place for me to be because when you're witnessing something it's secondary to you it's outside of you but now all of a sudden everything I've been witnessing for a long time because this was a very long time that I was witnessing this I realized that I was an idiot how could I not know that I was watching my own death this whole time how could I not know that and I just felt so dumb and such an idiot how I could not know that what I had been witnessing this whole time was my own death. And I started to allow these dark, fearful thoughts into my consciousness, into my mind space, my head space. And as I was having these negative thoughts, I started to see some of the negative things I had done, some of the negative influences I had had in my life. And I saw it from the fastest little glimpses, but I saw it from not just inside of me, but from inside the people that I affected. And as I started to feel like I was drowning in this fear and darkness, I began to feel this most beautiful warmth. Words literally can't describe this warmth that I felt. This pure, unconditional love started to pour over me. It felt like warm water being poured over my back. And I remember it was such a beautiful feeling that I wanted to know where it was coming from. And as I, I embraced this feeling, I started to now see in very quick flashes, the good things that I had done and that there was so much more good that I had ever done than ever bad. And not just that, I also saw the future things that I was going to be able to do. I saw the impact of my life, the ripple effect of my life before and after my experience of death. 
And I turned my countenance behind me and perceived this man, this man all dressed in white. He was wearing a white suit with like a white robe over his shoulders. He had a very long white beard. He had longer white hair around his shoulders and he had very, very pink skin, just extremely pink skin, but pink skin that glistened like sand in the sun. It was just absolutely amazing just to be witness of his countenance because he exuded unconditional love, love I had never experienced in this world, love that I knew I didn't deserve, love that was so full of grace and so full of power. And that love, it, it permeated me. It cleansed me of all the little black holes that I had allowed to grow inside of me in this life from trauma and from, from abuse, from harm that I had received. And as I'm experiencing this, as I'm experiencing this and feeling this tremendous feeling, I thinking in my mind, this must be God. And the very next thing I hear, I hear almost a chuckle or a laughter in a loving way. And I hear, no son, I'm not God. And I know it's this man talking to me. And I, I recognize that we're communicating with just thought. We don't use our mouth. Then I think the very follow-up thought is, well, if you're not God, then you must be Jesus. And again, in his glistening power, he just sat there and kind of chuckled and lovingly sent love towards me, helping me understand that he wasn't Jesus either. But who he was is my guide, that his name is Drake. And he's there to help facilitate or help me go where I want to go. So if I wanted to go back to where my body was and get back in my body, I could, but I could also go with him. And instantly I knew I didn't want to go back where that body was. Even looking back at that energy of what was going on around the body, it looked like hell. It really did, especially compared to this love, this tremendous love and power that was coming out of this gentleman. So I went ahead and I said, I want to go. I want to go with you. He again grinned and smiled and explained to me, well, that's perfect because he's going to help me see what's next in my existence. And thus we began a journey. And he helped me understand that this journey, that it's not a your typical journey from point A to point B, from one point in the universe to another point in the universe. We're going to be traveling to a much higher frequency or a much higher understanding a much higher form of energy that I had to become to be able to go where we were going to go. So he began this process of traveling, guiding and helping me at the same time as lovingly educating me. And so I thought there must be a quick front door or back door or side door I could get directly into heaven because I had everything I needed in my faith. And he smiled and lovingly showed me that there was so much more I didn't fully embrace or understand yet. Even in my Christianity, in my version of Christianity that I learned and was raised in, I wasn't fully embodied to what I needed to know. For me, I wasn't fully embodied to know what I needed to know to get where we were going to go. So he began this process of, of working me through these principles. Now he worked, with, worked me through so many principles, but I break them down in my experience to 10 major principles. And it would take me hours and hours to go over each and every one of these principles. But as I went through this process, today I'll try to explain um, the basics of each one of them. The first thing he taught me is that I had to learn how to be truly authentic, to be myself no matter who I'm ever around, that my authentic version of myself is who I am and not the different version I allow to be around certain friends, certain family, co-workers, and different aspects of who I allowed myself to be. And Drake helped me see that 
there's absolute beauty in authenticity. And in this life, we see the most authentic people are the very, very young and the very, very old. Because as you come in this world and as you leave this world, you don't care about what others think. So I began that process of being authentic and peeling away the different aspects and layers and personalities I'd allowed over the top of who I really was to accept who I was for weaknesses and in strengths. I accepted myself for who I was. And that brought me to understanding principle two, which is fully understanding the reason that we're here. And the reason we are here is to learn. That's it. We're here to learn, to create, to embody love and to use the power of love to create and to build relationships and creations. And that's what we're here to do. And that brings me to the third principle, which is love everyone. That because we are here to learn how to love, love is that third principle. The, and, and being able to truly, unconditionally love all people and all creation, all the beings, all the plants, the trees, the animals, all of creation is part of that energy of loving everyone. And Drake helped me gain a vision or, or grasp really how big the cosmos is, how big all of creation is and how life persists and is not the rarity that we were taught it is. Life is everywhere in the universe, everywhere in the universe. And then it brings me to the fourth principle, is, which is listen to your inner voice. Listen to the built-in conscience or direction that we have directly from the Creator, from God, that we have a direct connection with God through our inside, through our holy temple, which is here between our two temples. That's our holy temple. And we have a sacred connection to the Creator there if we will allow it. But first we must recognize that it is there and then begin the, the work of listening. And the more we listen, the stronger the voice. The less we listen, the more the voice disappears. The more the gut feeling or the conscience disappears for us. So it's important for us to understand that we have that inner voice, that that's a possibility for us, for inner guidance, for answers to prayers, for direction when we have questions. And that brings me to the next principle, which is the fifth principle, which is, you know, using technology responsibly. Understanding that that inner voice can only be as strong as we allow it to be. And if we are so distracted with our daily access to technology, then our world, our universe, will not even recognize that inner voice because we are so distracted that we must use it with limitation and with control, which leads us to the sixth principle, which is release prejudice. And me, myself, I felt that I was the least prejudiced person that I thought I knew. But what I didn't realize is I did have prejudice towards prejudiced people. And I, myself, had to release my own judgments of even prejudiced people and release that to understand that all creation is divine, even those who have the mistake of judging others and putting them down from insecurity. And that once we understand that process, that we can love beyond the prejudice of other people and we can love the soul that exists, the peace of God that exists inside every single one of us. That's extremely important for us to grow. And that's the, the principle number six of releasing prejudice that I was taught. Then it brought me to principle number seven, which is exercise the power of creation. We're here. We're in the classroom. We can create. And it begins with our thoughts. 
because our thoughts become our habits. Our habits become our actions. Our actions become our character and our destiny and the direction that we live our life. So it's very important that we start with our thoughts. And if we can think it, we can build it, we can create it. So control the thoughts. Choose what goes in your holy temple because there is where the beginning of creation starts. And it brings us to principle number eight, which is avoid negative influences. Negative influences are everywhere and, and they're part of technology, but they're also part of toxic environments and toxic relationships and toxic jobs, toxic schools, toxic relationships everywhere. It's important for us to avoid these negative influences and recognize when there is toxicity or negative energy around us and call on God, call on the creator to bring a barrier of protection between us and the negative energy. And that brings us to principle nine, which is understanding that there is a purpose to evil. For there to be an up, there has to be a down. So as long as we are constantly learning, even from our mistakes, we can turn our mistakes into blessings as long as we're learning. But there is absolute purpose in evil. There has to be evil for there to be good. Because without evil, there is no good. Without good, there is no evil. We have to understand that there is a divine balance between the two. And it's our choices, starting with our thoughts, that we choose which direction we want our energy to go. And that led me to the last principle, which is know that we are all one. Every single one of us are creations of the Creator, that we are all one in creation. We are one in God's body or Creator's body because we do carry that spark, that golden light of God within us. We can build that strength in that and understand that all beings, all creations here carry that. And that to harm any other creation is to only harm, harm God and ourselves. And once I fully embodied this, I actually started to see heaven and started to have a heaven experience where I saw us touching down on a, a very vast planet, a very vast space. And I got to experience the most beautiful trees, the most beautiful grass, and you feel this tremendous white light coming out of everything. I felt so strongly the presence of God there. As we touched down, I could feel and connect to God in this space. But God was showing up in everything there. And it was just a beautiful experience that I have a hard time explaining because literally we don't have these colors. We don't have these smells. We don't have these sounds that I experienced there. But yet, I want the world to know what's there for all of us. And as I'm experiencing all this, my guide Drake comes to me. And at this point, I know him really well because he worked me through these 10 principles and it was really hard. Every, every single one of these principles, as I understood it and embraced it, we were able to keep moving. And he brings me close and says, Vinny, this is going to be very hard, but it's going to be worth it. And he brings me in and gives me a hug. And their hugs are different. Hugs are very, very different there because they're you're not trapped in the physical form or in the, the third dimensional form. You're physical there, but you're more energy than you are low density carbon like you are here. So as we brought our two energetic bodies together, we came together as one in this hug. And as we did, both our light came together. His light and my light came together and expanded. And it's so beautiful because the light of the two of us was four times brighter than the light of the single, of the individual. And I learned a very powerful principle in that, that when we come together in love, we become four times stronger than we could ever become on our own. And that's only if two come together in love. And 
as it came over me, I started to actually hear a special prayer that was being given to my body. Well, meanwhile, while I'm here traveling and I'm going to heaven, I'd been dead and revived and now in a coma for three days. And my brother was down on earth. He was giving my body this special prayer. And as he did this third night that I was in this coma, he blessed that I would be made whole and that I would be okay. And as he closed that prayer, the love that my brother had for me forced me, took my agency away because that prayer was stronger than even my agency. And that love that he felt and that I felt for him, it forced me back to my body and forced me into the hardest experience I've ever had in my life. And yes, the hardest experience was coming back from heaven because once you're there, you don't want to come back to this. And that's understandable for those who have been there. They understand that. And I woke up, I felt fine. I pulled all the tubes out of me. I stayed for a good, almost six full hours, signing paperwork, doing tests, test after test after test after test. They wanted to test everything. And fast forward, this entered the hardest part of my life and trying to go back to a quote unquote normal life of working and trying to find normal worldly happiness or earthly happiness, not worldly, but earthly happiness. And I just wasn't finding it in anything. And I kept hearing my guide's voice. I kept hearing Drake tell me, this is gonna be really hard, but it's gonna be worth it. And fast forward, almost three months later, it did begin to become worth it. I met the love of my life. I met my earth angel. Her name is Andrea. And I could see literally heaven's light coming from her eyes. What I've done since is I've really tried, in my perfect no way, shape or form, but I have really tried and I continue to try to embody these principles every single day. And for many years, I've been sharing my experience. My experience is, is not for everybody, but for those who hear it and it resonates with them, it is for them. As sad as it is to say, I had to die to learn how to live because I wasn't living in a way that would bring me true happiness, true eternal happiness was not a part of my life until I after, after I died. And since I died, I've learned a completely different way of living. And I love and I'm so grateful for my experience because it does make me a better person. And I want you to know, if you take anything from this experience, just know this, that you are a divine masterwork. And just like any divine masterwork, your value comes from your mistakes and your successes. That is what makes you the masterwork. And if there is anything that you take away from this, I wish it would be that because we are important to our creator. And I want to leave you with that and let you know that I'm sending you all love and extreme amounts of light and wishing for you a strong divine connection with your creator, with your God who loves you so very much. Peace and love to you all. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. 
I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast, so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts. If you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com, you can see the promotional t-shirts there. Reach out to me. Also, if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast, just reach out and see if I can get that done. I've been getting some really great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.